Hello and welcome. Today, private investor Mark Atkinson will be reviewing his stock holding in Smurfit Kappa, ticker symbol SKG. And I'm also pleased to announce that our podcast is now generously hosted by City of London firm Progressive Equity Research. Mark will be talking more about that too later in this episode 10 of the Desert Island Investor. Well, what have you got there then? Ah, well, uh, I did a bit of a walk along the beach earlier this morning and uh, found a couple of FedEx packages that had washed up. And I just thought I'd uh, open them up and see what was inside. Any practical use? Absolutely none whatsoever. In this one, there's just a couple of jars of homemade salsa. And uh, I don't particularly like that spicy food anyway. Um, but the main thing was that I was just surprised how well the boxes stood up to being in the sea and seeing that's something we're talking about today, isn't it? Cardboard, um, because you're doing uh, Smurfit Kappa Group. So you're retired now, but prior to this, you worked exclusively in the paper industry and latterly in the related wider packaging industry. Yes, Paul, that's right. Uh, picture, if you will, uh, Fenny Skulls Blackburn, 1984, and a young athletic man with a full head of hair and apple cheeks, full of innocence and enthusiasm, starts his first day in the sales department of Star Paper Limited on the princely sum of £6,000 a year. Um, I studied paper and the industry additionally at night school. That was, that was lots of fun. And passed the National Association of Paper Merchants interim and final certificate with credit. And fast forward, I eventually became a member of the Lancashire Paper Trade 25 Club. Uh, that's for people within Lancashire who worked in the industry for 25 years. And I'm allowed to wear the coveted club tie. And uh, over my career, I've worked various times for both paper mills and merchants. Yes, I've seen that tie. Um, so you know a little bit about paper. Thanks very much for the CV. Yeah. Um, so moving swiftly on. Uh, what are the base numbers for Smurfit Kappa? Yes, it's got a, a market capitalization of 8.4 billion, a PE of 8.3, and a yield of 3.7%, and that's based on the current share price of £32.46. When were they first listed, and when did you invest? They were jointly listed on the Irish and London stock exchanges in 2007, and that was a couple of years following the merger between uh, Irish Jefferson Smurfit and Dutch Kappa Packaging. And Smurfit originally dates back to 1934. Now, I first invested in April 2016 at £19.14. Uh, then again in June 2019 at £21.75. November 2019 at £27.04. April 2020 at £22.11. And November 22 was my last edition at 29 pounds and four pence now at the time of the float the business was valued at 1.5 billion euros which is approximately 1.3 billion sterling and it's now valued at 8.4 billion as we've just mentioned so you could argue that this has been good progress so they've just released interim figures any surprising um things in that 
Uh, not particularly, uh, as expected, I think. Revenue was down 9% and EBITDA down 5%, with box volumes down 6%, which I think re- reflects a tighter environment. For, you know, consumers aren't spending as much, and you know, given the, you know, the well-documented cost of living. I would suggest that this is nevertheless, nevertheless well within the long-term upward trend. Um, Smurf advised that they're continuing to gain market share, and this isn't uh, just through lowering uh, prices. And um, return on capital employed is 19%. Right, well, uh, what's the investment argument with Smurfit Kappa? Well, with a business, it makes it easier if the business has got a tailwind. And with Smurfit, I would suggest that it's blessed with having two. Uh, firstly, the rise in e-commerce and the increasing move away from plastic to paper-based packaging. I thought we'd cover both. When you mentioned Smurfit Kappa, it didn't really strike me as an exciting area. I mean, we're all familiar with cardboard boxes. I mean, we see them every day. We have done for most of our lives. Yeah, corrugated's been around a long time, Paul, since 1871, um, when it was painted by Albert Jones in New York City. Um, And it's as though, as a product, it's it's waited very patiently over a century for Tim Berners-Lee to subsequently invent the internet and online shopping to take off. So I think it's perhaps that you know corrugated packaging has been around so long as it you know as an investment it's it perhaps it's been ignored you know if it's a, if it had been a product that just been come along in recent times we'd probably see it as a wonder product. So you may have heard of Pitney Bowls, who are a U.S. business probably best known for their postage meters. Well, every year they produce uh, a parcel shipping index. And they estimate that between 2022 and 2027, the global parcel volume will grow up to 256 billion parcels by 2027. Now, that's a, a, a compound annual growth rate of 8.5%. Now, in the UK, we are very much at the front runners as online consumers. Per capita, we receive 80 parcels per year. Now, that's the highest in the 13 countries within the index. But the rest of the world is slowly but steadily following this established pattern. And, uh, you know, I would suggest it's, you know, it's not just uh, predictable markets. You know, in Morocco, Smurfit Carper have just opened their first corrugated plant at a cost of 35 million euros to service industrial, agricultural, FMCG, pharmaceuticals and ceramics. And it's resulted in 400 new jobs, both directly and indirectly. Now, this market was previously serviced uh, from Spain, but this new facility will have 1,500 solar panels saving 55% on electricity and 900 tonnes of CO2. Lots of these emerging economies are coming along at pace, following the same path as developed economies and producing a consumer class. And it's easy to think that many countries being light years behind us, but just take a look at Morocco. It's got the Alborac Railway and it's got developed skyscrapers and office blocks. And, you know, it's not dissimilar to, you know, the, the Western world, Paul. So I go to... Mauritius, and I, I visit the local supermarkets, and they're just as recognisable as, as they are in the UK. You know, we've got tro- trolleys, baskets, checkouts, aisles, air conditioning, tinny music, corrugated shelf-ready packaging, and corrugated point of supply. It sounds just like what we've got. So we could describe SKG as a classic picks and shovels business. Yeah, Jeff Bezos, he's, you know, he's made his fortune from Amazon. Um, of that Pitney Bowles estimate of 256 billion parcels, there'll be hundreds of thousands of different products, but a common denominator is that nearly all of them come in case in some form of paper-based packaging. 
there are many ways to play the move from bricks and mortar uh, to online retail. Uh, I see retail itself as a race to the bottom. Often the product is not unique, so it's a case of you know who's going to work for the narrowest margin. And then you can look if you look at couriers. Um, Tufnels have recently gone into administration. You know, all you need to to be a courier, courier is a man in a van, and you know you virtually have a business. For me, packaging um, is the better play. Now, for me, shopping is an activity I abhor. Uh, I'd much rather be doing something something else with my time. Uh, if there is such a place as hell, it probably consists of a shopping centre. Now, we're both men of a certain age, Paul. And um, are you an advocate of online shopping, or are you, you know, old school and prefer to driving into Bolton, you know, paint apart your car, get wet, queue up, and be told uh, that the, what you want isn't in stock? <laughs> um, well, I, I still shop for. Um, you know, essentials like alcohol uh, yeah. on on foot or by car. Uh, so I go and I do food shopping, but I, I don't uh, hardly ever go into the town centre now. It's nearly done at uh, one of the satellite supermarkets mm. um, where you don't have to pay for your parking. Uh, and I use Amazon as well, obviously for for things. Um, I don't I don't do online shopping. I don't do I don't get groceries no. online, but. Uh, uh, but that uh, I may I may well do yeah. in the future. Well, just over the last couple of days, um, they mentioned that Wilco's are at the verge of um, administration, and I can yeah. only rem- I, I'm not saying I've only been in it once, but I can only remember going in in a Wilco's once to buy a rice maker. Uh, that must have been about ten years ago, and now I wouldn't even consider going in person to buy a product like that. That would be something that I get on the internet. Back to Smurfit. Uh, do they have a moat? Yeah, well, I would say that part of their moat is that they've got a well-integrated offering, you know, in that they've got forests, paper mills, corrugated conversion plants, and recycling facilities. Now, this gives them some control over continuity of supply. Then there's the scale. They've got 48,000 employees and 355 production sites spread across 36 countries. They're not exposed to just, you know, one, one country or just several. But one moat for corrugated is that it requires very regionalised production. You know, a lot of the cost of the product being shipped consists of fresh air in packaging. So if you've got to transport it over a long distance, that's counterproductive. So it has to, you know, it has to be manufactured and supplied close to the consumer. So compared to a lot of other companies, I think it's fair to say that Smurfit had a, a good COVID Yes, for obvious reasons, you know, people gravitated online shopping, you know, this acted, you know, as an accelerant for this transition. And in addition, Smurf, it was deemed an essential business generally across the countries in which it operated. So um, it was largely unaffected by any lockdowns or furlough schemes. And what about the competition? Yeah, there's plenty of competition. Uh, Smurfit is a, a FTSE 100 business, but so are two other companies in the same field, DS Smith and Mondi. But given the pro- growth prospects, uh, there appears room for all, and uh, it's a case of uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, Smurfit had previously said that of more opportunities that they can manage with. So, you know, certain governments are banning or taxing certain types of plastic packaging. Plus, you know, individual businesses are themselves independently moving to paper-based products from plastic. But it's too easy just to announce these moves at a stroke. You know, the tonnage involved is enormous. And, you know, there's not necessarily the capacity within the paper industry to, to accommodate all these requirements. Just wondering, any particular thoughts? 
I've, I've seen quite a few things um, that appear to be successful um, on, on at, uh, at first glance. I remember seeing quite a few bottles now that are made of paper pulp, um, which must have some kind of uh, lining, I guess, to stop the liquid from seeping through. But that's they, they look quite unusual. So, uh, the ones I saw, I think, had uh, washing powder or detergent in them. Uh, and, of course, there are lots of things like they they can have the plastic rings that hold cans of beer together can be replaced with uh, um, with cardboards now. It's it's, it's it's very durable, very flexible. Mm. Um, I, mean, I did a quick look at, at uh, Smurfit uh, Kappa's um, range. I mean, they're, they're obviously they're really big and do a lot of things. But uh, one of the things that caught my eye was they, they actually make a cardboard tent. Um, so if you're, um, if you're a camper, uh, you can get the cardboard tent out. Uh, the idea, I think, is that they were made available at, uh, at festivals. And so um, people have obviously seen the, the photographs of the thousands of tents that have been abandoned by festival goers. So they've decided that it'd be better to have cardboard tents that I guess could be recycled. And I have um, also seen a video of uh, one chap on YouTube who actually went and uh, bought one of these things and took it into the forest in England uh, in the rain and, and did a, a review on it. I'll, I'll put a link to his um, YouTube channel in the, in the notes. And the channel's called Kent Survival. Uh, and I didn't actually watch it to the very end, so I'm not sure whether he just wound up with a big soggy lump of cardboard or whether it was actually manageable. Uh, but it seems it comes in a very big packet. You know, it, it, it's it's quite a substantial thing. You know, it's, uh, it's not the sort of thought thing you can put under your arm if yeah. you're thinking of transporting it. But again, cardboard uses for cardboard uh, increasing all the time. Yeah, it's very it's very flexible. I'd never thought of uh, making a tent out of it though. <laughs> now um, there are arguments between paper and plastic industries as which is the most environmentally friendly and. Um, you know, there's figures as to how much carbon's being produced uh, in, in, in paper manufacturing. But, you know, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, the direction of travel is with the paper industry at the moment. So with this increase in demand, uh, how are Smurfit responding? Well, um, paper businesses love big order books. Uh, longer runs really help efficiency as there are less stoppages. Uh, there's nothing better than putting that machine in top gear and letting it cruise. Uh, this allows the opportunity to bottom trim, uh, which is a euphemism for dropping business that is not as possible. And, you know, machines are becoming ever faster and wider and more efficient, but Smurfit are bringing on new capacity with new builds and also making acquisitions as many as 37 since uh, 2012. Uh, as an example, in 2021, Smurfit purchased a mill in Vizuolo from uh, Cartier Burgo. Uh, a company I worked for for 10 years, and this cost 360 million euros and produced 600,000 tonnes of recycled container board. Now, interestingly, uh, until 2019, this was manufacturing coated graphical papers, the type we use in magazines. Uh, as we're using less graphical paper for, for various reasons, you know, many mills are being converted to packaging applications. Uh, closer to home, uh, there's another mill in Shotton in North Wales, which was uh, previously manufacturing Newsprint, and this has been adapted to container board. Now, that's not a, a Smurfit enterprise, but it's just another example of, of what's occurring. Since you initially purchased, I believe that Smurfit received a takeover approach from International Paper, but this did not go through. Uh, were you disappointed by that? 
Um, uh, this was back in 2018, and the initial offer was for a combination of 22 euros cash and 0.3028 international paper shares, which was a 27.4% premium. Now, this was later increased to 25 uh, euros cash plus 0.3 international paper shares, valuing the bid at uh, 9.5 billion euros or 8.3 billion sterling. Now, today, international um, share price is just over $36. But rather than being disappointed, I was relieved because, uh, you know, sometimes investors are ecstatic about receiving a, a takeover bid. But, but, you know, this can be a, shir- a short-term sensation. If you've got a good business, which I believe Smurf it is, and obviously as international thought, you know, if it's sold, then I have to find another home for that money, and that may not be in such a compelling investment. So I'm happy that uh, Smurf it can show the return under its own steam. I often hear of people investing for either growth or income, but you feel that Smurf it offers both. Yes, as well investing for for future growth, you know, the dividend of 3.7% should not be ignored. And dividend growth has been good since I first invested. Uh, in 2016, uh, the dividends totaled uh, €79.6, Euro cents, and in 2022, this has risen to €1.39. Euro uh, if you take a time frame since 2011, the compound annual growth rate uh, for the dividend has went 22.5%, and €2.4 billion Euros have been returned to shareholders over that period. Uh, in 2022, uh, in the report, the dividends were you know two point six times by earnings per share, so it doesn't look uh, you know, overly stretched. And um, in the recent webcast, they didn't rule out uh, the prospect of share buybacks. Uh, so you know, if you look at twenty twenty two, you know the return on capital employee was twenty one eight twenty one point eight percent, which I think would take a lot of people by surprise for what might at first appear a boring business. I understand the stamp duty is higher with Smurfit. Yeah, it's usually 0.5% for companies on the LSE and zero on AIM shares. But with Smurf, it, uh, this is 1% by virtue that it's an Irish-listed company. Uh, now, this doesn't overly trouble me as I'm a long-term investor. And hopefully that 1% I pay will be spread over the next you know, 10 or 20 years. Even though you're not still in the industry then, you, you feel your back history gives you an advantage with analysing this particular stock? Yeah, you know, I still have many ex-colleagues and customers who, who are personal friends that I converse with and, and I read trade magazines. So I think this gives me a good insight, uh, which, uh, you know, I don't have to dig too too deeply for. Okay, Mark. Well, thank you very much indeed for discussing Smurfit. Um, a little bit of news that I announced right at the very beginning was the fact that this uh, episode is generously hosted by uh, a company called Progressive equity research uh, and uh, I believe you're going to tell us a little bit about that uh, association yeah Paul uh, excellent news very exciting news for us that you know after just nine episodes you know when we started this I don't think we knew exactly you know where it was going to go whether you know um, you know it would have floundered after two or, two or three but we've kept going and we've had lots of support and uh, really pleased that you know progressive equity research which are a, a city firm that represents uh, our clients are small and medium cap uh, businesses um, are putting their name alongside ours and they will be hosting our podcast on their website you know so hopefully you know this will give us a wider audience and bring us into touch with 
you know, more more investors uh, and more shareholders. And, you know, that's that's my currency because you know, that's, uh, you know, more information and, and knowledge that I, I can utilise. And the other good news about this, of course, is that we're now uh, going to be uh, broadcasting the podcast on more conventional podcasting channels like Spotify in addition to our YouTube channel. So uh, that's uh, that's also good. It widens our audience a bit. Well, it widens the number of people that may or may not listen to the <laughs> to the podcast. Yeah. We could just be widening the number of people that say I'm not remotely interested in Look, that. But this this time next year, Paul, we're gonna be on a desert island twice as big as this one, believe me. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, uh millionaires rodders. Yeah, millionaires. yeah. But uh, I you know, I do think that it, it is a, an excellent fit for us. You know, I do think that um what we offer complements, uh, particularly what you know Jeremy does on Jer- Jeremy McEwen on his in the company of Mavericks podcast, which is different to this and uh and one thing that was very important to us is that we, we retain creative independence, Paul. You know, in that you know we when we started off on this, one of the things that we do want to do is to be true to ourselves, uh, and just um, you know we don't want to compromise on that. And uh, you know they were very supportive of that. You know, th- their actual words that was that they you know they didn't want to to meddle or or, or um, you know clip our wings in any way was another phrase that, that they used. And uh, you know not just for you know the content, but just the, the logistics of it. You know, if we'd recording an episode and edited it and then we had to send it off for somebody else to you know to eventually get around to listening to it and, and sign it off you know that just wouldn't have worked at all so you know i just think it's um i think it's just terrific for us and and thanks for everything that you've done paul oh thank you you're welcome i'll um next time i'm on amazon i'll buy you something and have it sent to you in a cardboard box made by smurfit okay mate um okay so, uh, next uh, we straight into question in a bottle then and uh, let's see what's in the bottle today. Right, question from David Raywood. And David asks, what is EBITDA? Right, well, thank you once again, David, for your excellent question and your ongoing support, which is appreciated. Now, EBITDA is a measure of a company's profitability, but only on the operating business before certain other factors are deducted. Uh, First and foremost, it's cards on the table, and I'm not an accountant, so I have but a a lay understanding of accounts. My view on accounts is a little like this. I've recently made an Arnold Bennett omelette, and jolly good it was too. It contains smoked haddock, cheese, garlic, milk, creme fraiche, and an assortment of other ingredients. Now, if you Google Arnold Bennett omelette, you will find numerous different recipes all claiming to be an Arnold Bennett omelette, but they all taste slightly different, and I feel that accounts is a little like that. It's not like when we were at school and we learned that nine nines make 81, or, or the chemical symbol of gold is AU. It's not just a case of adding up all the numbers, and there's one definitive result. I'm sure if you put 10 accountants in separate rooms, Together with the numbers, what they would produce would all look slightly different. So I'll give my take on EBITDA. Uh, the easy bit is explaining that it's an acronym for earnings before, a key word missing there, deduction of interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation. It's something that appears to be used more and more and probably one of the main attractions is that it provides a company with a bigger, sometimes much bigger, an eye-catching number than just straight profit. 
So the degree to which EBITDA can skew the picture depends on the separate exposure the business has to those four main components, the ITDA, interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation. On interest, if you have relatively high levels of debt, then this will naturally have a burden on its relevance to this metric. And on tax, well, it's hoped that you are paying some tax, as this would suggest that the company in question is actually making a profit. Then we have depreciation, which is an item that can be played around with. Uh, when a company buys an asset, and they would refer to, to tangible assets, these are physical things that we can, we can touch, its cost is not set immediately against the profit, but across what's deemed its useful life. And this is a guesstimate of how long it will last. And over successive years, what is considered its fair value will diminish. Now, there are two main forms of depreciation. Uh, straight line, where the asset depreciates by the same value each year over its useful life, which seems quite simplistic. And then double declining, where an asset loses more value in its early years and then more slowly after that. Uh, think about driving a, a brand new shiny car out of a showroom. So if you lay those two methods over one another on a graph, they will look quite different. So you can choose the method of depreciation and then management has the flexibility to make a judgment on what the useful life of an asset is. If an asset is given a, a useful life of say 10 years, it's highly unlikely uh, in 10 years time when the clock chimes midnight that it will co coincide with that asset needing replacing. It could last shorter or it could last longer. Management also have to assess whether at the end of the useful life, the asset is likely to have some residual value. Uh, an asset may sit on the books at zero, but still have some residual value, even if it's just for spare parts or scrap. And management also have the ability to revise the useful life of assets. This might be for totally justifiable reasons. Or there again, you have to remember that directors are only temporary custodians of a business. And it's possible that decisions are made in the expedient short term. <laughs> if there's some blowback in, in the future, somebody else will be sitting in the hot seat whilst they're winning in an Acapulco. So perhaps the argument is that because depreciation can be a little bit nebulous, then that's a reason EBITDA is better as it strips it away. Well, I'd say no. It might not be a perfect science, but it's better than not making an attempt. Then lastly, we have amortisation, which is similar to depreciation, but it involves intangible assets, things that we cannot touch. Amortisation, I understand, is calculated slowly on a straight line basis and would apply to things like trademarks, licenses or franchises. These are things that expire and the only element is time. Uh, unlike uh, tangibles, there's no attrition, there's no wear and tear and there's no residual value. So if you have an asset like business, uh, say a software or recruitment business with little or no borrowings, then you may see little difference with EBITDA. However, if you had a business with lots of assets and some debt thrown in, then the picture could look somewhat different. Uh, and as an example, uh, a convenience ex example, we, we need not look long no further than the, the company that we've discussed this episode, which is Smurfit Kappa. Now, the 2022 annual report consisted of 236 pages. Straight away on page two, bang, we had the revenue. 12.815 billion euros and EBITDA of 2.355 billion euros. That looks pretty good. And an EBITDA margin of 18.4%. 
Now, papermaking and conversion is an asset-intense industry with lots of attrition, perpetual use, and lots of moving parts across pulp preparation, paper machines, rewinders, slitters, cutters, guillotines, folders, and other converting processes. So, as you would expect, Smurfit have lots of assets. Their property, plant, and equipment totals 4.631 billion euros. And thrown in, they have 2.672 billion euros of goodwill and intangible assets. They also have borrowings of 3.78 billion and net debt of 2.992 billion euros. So, if we dig a little further into the report, let's go beyond page two, into the guts of the report, as far as page 176, we obtain some more useful information. There are financial costs of 184 million euros. Uh, there's also some financial income of 35 million, making a net 149 million euros. Income tax expense is 348 million euros. And depreciation and depletion, if we think about all those hardworking assets, is 579 million euros. Lastly, amortization is 49 million euros. So I'm sure you'll agree these are not insignificant numbers. There are also peripherals listed, uh, impairment of goodwill and non-current assets, unallocated centre costs and share-based payment expenses. So after stripping all these away from the EBITDA figure of 2.355 billion, we're left with profit for the year of 945 million, which is a much different number. So with EBITDA, we need to read beyond those initial pages in the report and dig a little bit deeper in order that we've got more of a rounded understanding of the business. Well, that's all for this episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. Please remember the content is for information only and it is not financial advice. If you would like to pop a question into a bottle for Mark, just post your question in the comments and hopefully it'll reach the island in time for the next episode. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.